Welcome to One Interview, One World. This is Lainey Kay, and this is a show about interviewing people from all walks of life because everyone has a story to share and we can all learn from each other. I hope you enjoy listening. And, and utilizing this system as a way of providing water to a city. Yes, I would. I would imagine a, a series of or point of use water stations. I could imagine a future where, on every building, instead of you know, just like with an air conditioner, there's a a unit that makes water from air, mm-hmm. ideally, um, and that would be a point of use water solution. And that rather than distributing water through pipes over long distances, mm-hmm. you know, at great, at great energy cost. Okay. Today I'm with David Hertz of FAIA and the Studio of Environmental Architecture. SEA is based in Venice Beach, California. The practice primarily focuses on sustainably built, environmentally sensitive, contemporary green buildings they handle residential and commercial designs in Los Angeles and worldwide. However, David's current work is to fight the water crisis by using machines that draw fresh drinking water from moisture in the air to help the local community in Venice, California, and the world. In October 2018, his company won the grand prize for water abundance with X Prize for their SkySource WeDo system, which is a versatile, self-contained Sustainable Energy Water Generator. WeDo stands for Wood to Energy Deployable Emergency Water. And earlier this month, David gave a TEDx talk which focused on the world's water problem and an approach to solving it that involves a range of systems working together to produce a biometric product that can be deployed as needed. You can find his full talk on YouTube. So, David, I thank you so much for the time to meet with us today and to explain about your company and the product, SkySource, and we do. Happy to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Can you tell me about yourself and how your company evolved? Sure. Um, I am an architect. I've been an architect for almost 35 years, really at the edge of sustainability. I started as an environmentalist and had to rationalize my place in the world um, as an environmentalist, also interested in the built environment, because the built environment, of course, um, has a lot of impacts on the natural environment. And um, so I focused my career on trying to lessen those impacts. That's fantastic. And that is something we need to do going forward with everything. How did you get into doing this then? Did you start out from studying like architecture in college? Yes, um, I was interested in architecture at a young age. Uh, general, in junior high, I knew I was interested in in uh, going into architecture, and uh, then I went to the Southern California Institute of Architecture, SciArc, and graduated with a bachelor's of architecture degree in 1983. And then you just started working in the field. Yeah, I had been working, uh, I worked for an architect named John Lautner, who was a disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright, who was quite a, mm-hmm. uh, an iconic L.A. architect. And then I worked for uh, Frank Geary um, for about a year, and then I opened my own firm 
in late 1984 uh, in Venice uh, and developed uh, both buildings but also furniture and ultimately invented a building material called syndicrete, which was a an advanced cement-based composite uh, where we use decoratively precast lightweight concrete as architectural surfacing using recycled material. So it was a, really a progenitor of, of innovative uh, use of recycled building materials. Fantastic. And and then and you also said you you would like to work with the environment and help make things more sustainable and work around the land. That's right. I mean, you know, buildings are the number one global greenhouse gas emitter, and um, and so how do we lessen the impacts of the built environment on the natural? And and actually, how do we move buildings beyond? what we refer to as sustainability to actually regenerative or restorative that that simply means why can't buildings give back more than they take and and we can do that with energy and we could do that with even food or green space or oxygen production but we can't really do it with water especially in california Mm -hmm. and what types of products and services does sea offer well we're a uh, kind of a boutique, multidisciplinary architecture firm. We design everything from small objects, like we designed the trophy, the perpetual trophy for the World Surfing League, and we've been working on a launch control facility for Elon Musk for SpaceX at Cape Canaveral. Um, hotels, um, residences, and and most recently really interested in the notion of resilience uh, because of the extreme climatic conditions that we're facing and will continue to face. So we've started a resilience lab within my architecture firm, firm SEA, Studio of Environmental Architecture, here in Venice to address some of these issues. When you say resilience lab, is it to create more um, products for building that's more resilient with the environment? Yeah, so by resilience, we really mean that I think it's it's indisputable if you believe in science that um, that we are having much more unpredictable and extreme future in mm-hmm. terms of weather events. And certainly in Southern California, that's that's been drought and wildfires. Um, in other areas, it could be hurricanes. It could be extreme water scarcity. Um, so, in, in fact, over 780 million people in 43 countries are currently facing water scarcity. Um, it's really due to a lack of availability, but also uneven distribution and access and contamination, you know, water quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the United Nations looks at about 1.8 billion people are going to be living with absolute water scarcity. That's two thirds of the world population by 2025. So these these are are really significant problems. I've been teaching on ecology and architecture, and have seen these telltale signs of uh, of future climate modeling and 
events, and unfortunately, they've been coming at a much faster and extreme pace. So I understand a little bit more about what's coming, mm-hmm. and 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 what when we're going to need some measures of resiliency to respond to those you know, increased intensifications of weather conditions. Got it. Got it. And can you tell me how did SkySource start? Yeah, SkySource is uh, well. I started SkySource based upon a uh, an understanding of the lack of, of availability of water. The fact that in California, water is transported long distances at great cost in terms of especially energy. Uh, over nineteen percent of California's energy budget is is for the distribution of water. Uh, through pumping long distances, and um, and you know, as I mentioned, our buildings can give back more than they take. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, we can convert light into electricity using photovoltaic. It's quite quite amazing and wonderful and clean. And but when it comes to water, all we can do is conserve it, which is great, and we should. But there's limits to how much we can conserve and then uh, collect it. But we get a lot of rainfall in a short period of time, and we it doesn't last us long enough. So the idea that there's atmospheric water in the air, quite compelling, the fact that there's six times more water in the air at any given time than all the rivers on the planet combined huh. is quite quite staggering. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Wow. And so you created the the product, which you call We Do. And I would like you to go into more detail about how that product works. So for the XPRIZE, um, which was set up by visionaries to address global challenges um, and to find nascent technologies that uh, could help address them. Um, and this so this incentive-based competition was is a two-year competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, 1.5 million dollars to the to the team that could uh, generate over 2,000 liters of water from air uh, in 24 hours using 100% renewable energy as a resource at a cost of less than two cents. Uh, there were 98 teams from 27 countries that competed and. We were the only ones to successfully do that. Um, and we did this with this um, concept that we refer to as the we do, as you mentioned earlier, a wood to energy deployed emergency water. If, imagine a 20-foot shipping container that basically has a what's referred to as a biomass gasifier. It, it, it uses a process called pyrolysis. Mm-hmm. which is not necessarily combustion. It's not burning it where there's carbon smoke coming out. It's basically heating up the um, the wood or agricultural waste and breaking apart its constituent element. So a lot of wood, it turns out, has about 60% of its weight by water. So you're capturing the water vapor, but you're also capturing... Um, CO2 that it's embodied in that wood um, and that that CO2 is atmospheric so you're sequestering atmospheric CO2 which is you know the number one issue of 
affecting um, climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you you sequester that into a byproduct called biochar. And a high-temperature biochar actually has very beneficial properties in the soil environment um, through its ion exchange, its water absorption, its beneficial bacteria hosting, wow. et cetera. Um, so it's a kind of a win-win across all platforms. And we take also that the volatiles out of that process, which are things like methane and hydrogen, and those are flammable. And so those can actually drop, become a gas that drives an engine. And that engine ends up creating a lot of heat in the process. And we recycle and reuse that heat uh, to make an augmented environment that makes it conducive to condensation when when uh, collided with cold, a cold surface. Um, and so we make energy and we make water and we have the possibility to even make refrigeration. Um, and this is a, a very compelling proposition in the way in which it can help address some of these world water and even rural electrification issues yeah it's spectacular what you guys have designed how long did you work on that or research and develop it so i've been interested in the atmospheric water space for about four years um i was working on it about two years before the x prize and then the x prize was two years um it was quite quite a dramatic competition because we actually were not selected into the final round and um, and a team that was not able to to perform uh, dropped out early and we were invited into the race late and um, and so it was really quite a, a comeback story that we were not even in the race yeah. and we ended up winning the race um, largely very bootstrapped, small, entrepreneurial, um, not overly academic, um, and much more hands-on. I partnered with um, um, a technical support team um, that I hired up in Berkeley called All Power Labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Mason, in particular, had been working in the biomass gasification carbon sequestration field for a long time and it became a marriage between the technologies of atmospheric water generation and and, and the energy generation um, so that that was very interesting because uh, one of the problems with normal atmospheric water generation is it requires a lot of energy mm-hmm. and it requires a climate that is conducive to making water and heat and um, and you know, that doesn't exist really concomitant with where water scarcity often is. Um, and, and one of the problems with, with the biomass gasification is that you can maybe go to where the say green waste is or agricultural waste, but you need a place to put all the energy. And so there was a marriage between, um, the two systems, uh, that, where energy no longer became a problem and even creating a hot, humid environment no longer became a problem. Wow, spectacular and wonderful. I'm so happy that you were able to design that. And then 
tell me about what are the world applications that you would like to see or how would you like to see this utilized in the world? So we're now, having won the XPRIZE, we now have lots of opportunities and interest uh, around the technology. And our goal has always been at SkySource to uh, kind of have a, have a, to bring water to those that need it most. And so we're trying to identify the, the right scenarios whereby um, we can we can really uh, bring water to people um, around the world. I think the model is is a model of both self-reliance and that we have the ability to help people with independence of their energy and water from large infrastructure or if they're not um, accessible and to offer climate resilience in the event of extreme weather or instability with the vulnerable grid mm-hmm. and and then lastly disaster relief you know if there's a hurricane there's an abundance of green waste and obviously that green waste can be um, consumed turned into energy which is needed turned into water and refrigeration so we imagine a, a deployable system that's point of use and this is really kind of um, antithetical to the existing infrastructure, right, which is old, um, vulnerable, uh, long distance, and, you know, central. And we're talking about decentralized, distributed uh, energy solutions and water solutions, which will obviously offer redundancy uh, in the event of a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you know, you, you look at Cape Town, South Africa, Right. You know, the government too slow to kind of respond to the issue of water scarcity. Or you look at Puerto Rico, that, you know, one single failure knocks out the entire system and you have a cascade of negative events. Um, or the case of Flint, Michigan, or even now uh, Newark, New Jersey, and many other places where the infrastructure is aged and you know, creating contamination of the water supply. And and so this is a kind of a leapfrog. It's destructive technology in that it essentially leapfrogs over the antiquated method of these centralized infrastructure systems. Mm-hmm. And also I would guess that the, the water is very clean and it doesn't have contaminants in it. One of, Yes, one of the amazing things about nature and is it generally does things so much better than we can as as man and we can learn a lot from it and one of those things is certainly the hydrological cycle um our best filtration systems cannot take out some heavy metals like chromium six and other things and as you may know uh water has a memory and everything it comes in contact with it tends to hold on to so with our municipal systems where they are sometimes vulnerable to of course lead like in the case of flint or newer um uh, pesticides chemicals in the case of you know watersheds that are agriculturally based um in our larger cities we've got microfibers pharmaceuticals um caffeine you know all types of things are in the water and therefore have to be filtered out 
but when it's in the atmosphere as vapor, it's already been essentially distilled and is pure, non-mineralized, essentially medical grade water. Um, and then, you know, it's, it still needs to be filtered if it's maintained for long times or, or sanitized. Um, but, but it is inherently free of all the contaminants that you would have in the ground or, you know, through a river, et cetera. Wow. Can you see a city then or, you know, changing the way that the water is done and utilizing this system as a way of providing water to a city? Yes, I would, I would imagine a, a series of or point of use water stations. I could imagine a future where on every building, instead of, you know, just like with an air conditioner, there's a, a unit that makes water from air, mm-hmm. ideally. Um, and that would be a point of use water solution and that rather than distributing water through pipes over long distances, mm-hmm. you know, at great, at great energy cost. Okay. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, analogous to what's already happened and been proven with distributed energy. Um, right now we have photovoltaics. We don't need a coal fired utility plants five States away that, you know, sends us power, you know, with great distances and line loss. Mm-hmm. Um, we can just put panels on our roof that last, you know, 50, 75 years and, you know, they're, they're solid state and it basically just converts light into electricity at our building. And so if the whole grid goes down, we can still make electricity. Um, it's the same with water. If we have multiple systems and there's redundancy and that's inherently more re- um, resilient. Mm-hmm. That's so neat. I I hope that this really gets utilized and that more people learn about this. With the money that you won from the X Prize, how do you plan to use that to help with this? Well, we plan to use all of the money to bring water to those in need most through further product development of the WeDo system. Okay. I wonder, can it be made much larger and can it be made much smaller utilizing the same technology? I believe it is scalable. Uh Um, I think I like the idea of smaller systems um, rather than, say, larger systems. But there's there's the ability to gang systems together so that let's say you have one machine that makes 300 gallons of water a day and you put 10 of them together, you have 3,000 gallons a day. That's, you know, that's pretty easy to just have lots of machines added together to make a kind of water farm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I know you you talked about um, the conservation of water and dealing with the water supply, and I wondered if you'd go into more detail for people to understand that. Yeah, uh, about about the... Fragility of, of, yeah. of the water supply. Yeah. yeah you know, I mean, the thing that I think is so fascinating, what I've learned about water, I mean, water came here from outer space. It, it, it is foreign, and the same amount of water is here. It, it's, it's not going anywhere. It just changes its state. There's 97% of the water on the planet is salt water. 
and so that leaves three percent of fresh water well over one and a half percent of that is frozen and you know quickly becoming salt water so it leaves uh about one and a half percent but of that only less than one percent about 0.77 percent is even available as potable drinkable water so it puts it in perspective how little water there really is um that is uh available for us that's not salt water and um when you think about six times the amount in the rivers about covering one inch of the entire planet um if it were all to be condensed it's renewable it's it's renewable on a weekly basis you know if you pump water out of the ground it could be have been there for you know thousands and thousands of years taking in whatever contaminants might be there that need to be filtered out when you talk about something in the air you can't extract enough because nature abhors a vacuum that's a you know simple fundamental non-negotiable law and system condition so if you if you extract moisture it's going to just backfill with more moisture so i think it's it's incredible to understand in how much we take for granted that we just you know uh turn on the tap and water comes out mm-hmm. uh, and again you know there's there's an estimates that that um you know demand is going to exceed supply by over 40 percent by by as early as 2025 2030 mm-hmm. that's that's staggering and what will happen is that there will be hydro political um kind of geographic stress from that meaning that you know like syria like many other places when there's not access to water and the ability to grow food then people migrate and 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 there that causes political tension so you know one of the climate change is one of the most significant issues facing national or national security and we need technologies that can help give us more uh, self-reliance and uh, and help our neighbors with their self-reliance so that they're not uh, migrating to really uh, create a rush on limited resources. Mm-hmm. Does the weed work in any environment? I mean, would it work where it's very dry? So the idea of creating an augmented environment where we where we use heat and humidity mm-hmm. to make our own tropical rainforest in a box um, can work anywhere in the driest climates. I think the only caveat is that we we still require some biomass, some okay. some form of something to burn plant material. You know, it could be rice husk in India or coconut shells in Indonesia. Um, you know, but but we need to be somewhat close to where there's available biomass. Fortunately, that that's pretty ubiquitous around around the planet. But certainly, in the middle of a desert where there's absolutely no what we refer to as feedstock, um, then that's that's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know you wouldn't want to transport feedstock to an area because that defeats the purpose. Um, so you can also use solar energy as a part of this. And that 
in those cases where you might have abundant solar energy or even wind, you can still do very similar things um, with those alternative technologies. Okay. And then what do you recommend for the world to work on to help conserve water or better utilize water? Well, I think first it comes with a, an awareness that water is an incredibly precious, finite resource and that we shouldn't take all of the water that, say, falls out of the sky, which has been, you know, purely cleansed water generally and let it just run back into the ocean. Because, you know, in California in particular, in Southern California, we, we only get so many rain events i mean very few and sometimes almost none at all and and when all that water billions and billions of gallons goes into the ocean we have to wait another year for for water so capture um control recharging kind of the aquifers but really being aware of of of, of conservation of you know, a big part of it is agriculture. Seventy percent of water withdrawals are often related to agriculture, and agriculture doesn't necessarily use water in the most efficient way mm-hmm. possible because it's heavily subsidized, and they're actually encouraged to waste it to maintain their uh, water allotments. Mm-hmm. And there's a very arcane, complex legal system of thousands of water agencies, you know, just in California alone and first rights uh, to, to water. So um, I think, you know, what's interesting about atmospheric water is that it's more about the democratization mm-hmm. of water rather than the commodification of it mm-hmm. by corporations. And that's often what's happening with drinking water is, is a relatively new invention to have water, delivered to us in little plastic bottles since the late 90s. And um, obviously what that's done is there's been a privatization of our commons, uh, let's say water as a human right, and sold to us at you know, tremendous profits in small bottles, which has also created more plastic than plankton in our oceans. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point to touch on. I'm glad you said that. So we need to, we do need to work on, it sounds like the, the way the water supply is happening and the old infrastructure, because that's an issue. And then, I mean, we, we have to work on that as well as utilizing like new, new research and new products, like what you're doing, but we still have to kind of have both. Do you agree? Yeah, this is a, um, we, we need multiple, multiple solutions mm-hmm. to this problem. We absolutely need to value water as a precious resource. We need to conserve it. We need to collect it. Um, and we need multiple um, multiple modalities to, to deal with it, you know. And, 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 and it, needs to be, um, it needs to be something that is, uh, you know, done – in different ways, at different places, different climates and people. Okay. All right. And then I, I always wondered, there's places that do get a lot of water. Um, do you think it's ever a possibility to have those places, like say the middle of the United States to share their water with 
you know, land or like with California, like how they pipeline oil, you know, from Alaska. Do you think that's like a, a smart thing to look into or, or not? Um, the, I mean, I just think uh, the closer to the source, the better, Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, anytime you get further, whether it's food, you know, it's this whole farm to table Mm -hmm. distance, um, that involves embodied energy. We, we, we consider these things life cycle along the life cycle, um, of say a material or product or processes, all the steps from say it's raw material extraction all the way through to its transportation and its final disposition. So the closer to the source you are, um, the less energy inputs you're going to have. And I think that's, that's critical. So, that's why we're interested in this hyper local mm-hmm. kind of contextual response to um, to water. That makes sense. It does. All right. And then, would you like to share more information about you or your company that we haven't touched on yet? Uh, no, I think that's been a pretty good uh, a good uh, overview on water. Okay. And you know, our architecture people can certainly learn more about us. Uh, on what we're doing with the water at skysource.org and also um, at our architecture firm, um, you know, by Googling David Hertz Architect or Studio Environmental Architecture. And we, you know, post interesting blogs and articles and updates about water and about other um, issues that we're interested in. Okay. And what upcoming projects or events would you like to share? Well, let's see. We are uh, we're constantly posting updates on talks and, and and events that we're doing on our website. I'm going to be participating as a speaker in Washington D.C. in March at the Global Food Summit. Um, also, I'll be speaking in Los Angeles at the uh, Verde Exchange um, conference on on water. Um, I'll be teaching a a, a kind of a workshop and studio at Yale University in February on, on this issue. Um, and so best to just keep keep in mm-hmm. touch with our our interest at, uh, at skysource.org. Okay, wonderful. And I like to ask people at the end of my interviews, what does humanity need to work on to make this world a better place? Well, I would say, you know, uh, collective kind of collective wisdom, I would say, you know, less divisiveness. Um, if what, what would happen is if we could unite around saving our species rather than arguing about it, um, about the ways in which to do it. You know, we need a, a kind of a Marshall plan, a space race, you know, a, 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 a mission, you know, when, when, you know, we gathered together, you know, to become a great superpower, you know, around World War II. Um, you know, maybe, you know, we, we launched men to the moon. You know, these are the kinds of things where there was broad consensus. And I think if we can move towards consensus on some of these issues and not dispute them, then we're going to be much more effective at being able to survive as a species, which is seriously in peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
That's a huge, huge point. I thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you, David Hertz. I appreciate the time, and I'm sure people are going to learn from the information that you told us about today. Thanks for the opportunity of sharing it. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.